0: The scripture this morning is from 1 John, beginning with chapter 2, verse 28, through chapter 3, verse 24. And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning, no one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him dear children do not let anyone lead you astray he who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous he who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning the reason the son of god appeared was to destroy the devil's work no one who is born of god will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay our lives down for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, Let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This, then, is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God And receive from him anything we ask, because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks,
1: Bill. Well, good morning. Glad you're here today. Good to see you. If you've been with us, you know that we're in the middle of this series, this confidence series where we're walking through the book of 1 John together, and many of you have told me what a blessing it has been to you. And uh, I wanted to remind you that we've set aside this upcoming week, beginning actually tonight, as a special season for focused prayer and fasting. There are prayer gatherings scheduled uh, every morning at 7 a.m. and every evening at 7 a.m., one hour prayer gatherings beginning tonight. Pastor Joe will be leading that one. And our purpose in that is to come together and pray in faith. Pray in faith for God's will to be done in our lives In our families, in our church For his will to be done in our city And in our nation And in the world And our theme is praying with confidence Praying with confidence So I challenge you to make a point of joining your brothers and sisters For at least one of those prayer gatherings That begin tonight and then tomorrow morning at 7 And in the evening at 7 and on through the week And I know you'll be blessed to participate in that Well you know it's interesting to me that we find in the scriptures God telling us that there's a link between our ability to confidently pray to God and the state of our relationships with other people. There's this principle that the horizontal affects the vertical that our interpersonal relationships with each other impact that upward relationship with God. We we heard that in what Bill just read in verses 21 through 23. I don't know if you picked up on it. John says that when we're obeying Christ's command to love one another, it's going to produce in us a greater confidence that God is going going to hear our prayers and he's going to answer our prayers. Another example of this principle comes from John's buddy Peter, where he wrote this. In his letter, he said, "'Likewise, husbands, live with your wives "'in an understanding way.'" And all the wives said, amen, "'showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, "'since they are heirs with you of the grace of life.'" Why? "'So that your prayers may not be hindered.'" Isn't that interesting? So evidently, guys, treating your wife in a way that dishonors her will result in your prayers being hindered. So again, the horizontal effects The vertical, do we see this? From the lips of Jesus himself, he said, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, what are we to do? Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. So do we get this? to knowingly be at odds with another person in our lives and, and refuse to go and seek reconciliation with them, that's gonna have an adverse effect on our closeness to God. The Lord said, go, go, make that right first, then come back and worship me. So again, this principle is reinforced. The state of our horizontal relationships with each other has an impact on our vertical relationship with the Lord. We're gonna explore that connection more in a little bit. It's very intriguing, I think. It's very convicting. So just let that run in an open window in the back of your mind for the next few moments. We'll come back to it in a bit. You can take the study guide out of your worship folder. And I want us to remind ourselves of what we're learning here in the book of 1 John. And John's main purpose for writing this epistle is found in chapter 5 and verse 13. Is that there on your outline? Okay, let's read it out loud together. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. There's that word know. It appears 40 times in the book of 1 John. 1 John was written for our assurance to help us who are professing Christians to know that we know that we know down deep in our heart that we really do have eternal life, that we really are saved, that we really genuinely are born again. And the way John goes about fulfilling that purpose is by presenting four evidences of true salvation. And he offers them to us as proofs or as tests. And and really the idea is this, to borrow from an old kid's song. If you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it. Would you say that with me? If you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it show it I should have had you sing it right (laughs) you cannot have the life of God in you and it not show up in how you live your life the life of God cannot help but show up but manifest itself in your lifestyle your decisions your choices your priorities your relationships I've heard these evidences also referred to as birthmarks birthmarks of a born again person And John reveals four of them and he keeps cycling back to them again and again and again to get his point across. And he's saying these are going to be present in some measure in the life of every single Christian. So here they are again by way of review. Four tests of knowing that you are truly saved. First is that doctrinal test that we've talked about. Do you hold fast to what the apostles taught about Jesus? We could call this the birthmark of persevering belief. Then there's the sin test. The sin test, is it your habit to own up to your sins rather than trying to keep them hidden and concealed and covered up? We could call that the birthmark of honest confession, couldn't we? And then there's the obedience test and Pastor Jay talked a lot about this one last week. Is your heart inclined to please Jesus by doing what he says? We could call that the birthmark of righteous living. And then finally, the love test, the love test. Is it the pattern of your life to show active compassion and love to fellow believers, especially those in need? We could call that the birthmark of self-giving love. Well, I was in our small group this week, and during our time together, several people expressed some relief to hear last week from Pastor Jay that the idea here in 1 John is not perfection, but direction, right? It's not that the the proof of our salvation is that we live a perfect life with zero failures. If that was the case, there would be zero Christians. None of us would pass the test of sinless perfection, would we? It's not the perfection of your life that marks you as a true believer, but it is the direction of your life, the trajectory of your life. And so good questions to ask are, do I see progress in my life? Do I see movement towards the goal of being more like Jesus? Would the people who know me and live with me and and interact with me every day, would they affirm that I'm moving towards God? Do I have a growing resolve in my heart to keep clinging to Jesus despite the adversity and hardship that enters into my life? life and when I think of that one I think of a gal on our worship team a single mom who by all accounts has just been through it in recent years I mean she's just kind of been through the meat grinder as it is said chronic physical issues plaguing her body combined with some recent upsetting family issues that have kind of turned things on their head in her family Combined with being run ragged at work, at her job, and by her own admission, there have been times when she was on the brink of despair, hanging on by a thread, and understandably. But again and again and again, when I've talked with Julie and when I've prayed with Julie, I hear her heart for Christ. And I always come away thinking, you know what, Lord, she's a real deal. Your life resides in her and showing up in a faith that perseveres. What an example Julie Tucker is to the people who know her. And she's, you know, she's a wonderful example and a motivation to the rest of us. And I say, praise God for her and others like her who are living it, who are living it. It's real. It's real. Well, in our section today in 1 John, we, we, we find this writer john in his characteristic way kind of hovering over two of those four tests kind of circling above them like a helicopter they are the obedience test and the love test and again his intention is to help people grow more confident in where they stand with god more confident of their salvation more confident in their prayers and so first he takes us back to that test of obedience. And he says that we can grow more confident in our walk with God by ridding ourselves of sin and habitually doing what is right. That's chapter two, verse 28 through chapter three and verse 10. And basically what I see John doing in this section is giving us 10 reasons, 10 incentives, 10 motivations for killing the sin that is in our lives and striving to live a righteous life to the best of our ability and by the grace and power of God. And I'm gonna walk through these very quickly because there's a place I need to get to this morning, so stay with me and let's let the Lord talk to us about this. Why, Steve, why give up my porn habit? Why let God puncture my pride? Why let go of envy? Why own up to my lifestyle of lying? Why give back what I've stolen? Why? Give me some incentives, some motivations. Okay, here we go. First, the prospect of seeing Jesus when he comes back. How about that one? You're gonna lock eyes with the second person of the Holy Trinity one day, and in that moment, you're gonna want to know that you lived your life for him. Second, God's immense love for us that moved him to set us apart from this world and adopt us into his family. How good is that? Third, the guaranteed promise of our future transformation into Christ's likeness when we see him John wrote we shall be what like him like that instantaneously transformed into the likeness of Christ and he says everyone who has that hope in him purifies themselves now even as he is pure Another reason to say no to sin and get the sin out of our lives is the evil nature of sin. Verse four, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. It is destructive. It is rebellious and it will ruin your life. So there's a good reason. How about this one? The pure Christ's costly work of removing our impurity. That's found in verse five. But you know that he appeared so that he might what? Take away our sins. That's why he came. He came. Why would we want to go back into sin when he came to remove our sins? The next motivation is seeing, knowing, and living in Christ. And that's talking about our position in Christ. That's an incentive to live a holy life. And then our intent to stay on God's path and not be deceived. Verse seven, dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. And there are teachers out there who will, if you listen to them, they'll, they'll say things like, you know what, if, if you're a Christian, you can live however you want. It's okay, you're on your way to heaven, it's all good. That's called hyper-grace, and that is a false teaching that is prevalent in our day, and, and John doesn't want us to be led astray by that and be deceived. It matters how we live our lives. Another incentive is our desire to not follow in the devil's footsteps. Verse eight, he who does what is sinful is of the devil. I mean, how many of us want to have the devil as our cohort in life? The devil, it says, has been sinning from the beginning. And then Christ's complete defeat of Satan's work, the reason the Son of God appeared, it says, was to destroy the devil's work. Why would we want to let him manifest his influence in our hearts and in our lives when Christ has defeated him? Then the reality, letter J, of having a new nature empowered by the indwelling Holy Spirit of Christ. Verse 9, this is powerful. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. And again, the, the, the language here, the grammar, the tense is will not continue in a lifestyle of habitual sin without repenting. Why? Because God's seed remains in us. And I don't know about you, but when I sin, I'm miserable. The Holy Spirit will not let me rest. My conscience bothers me day and night until I come clean and own my junk and you know what that tells me I'm a Christian God's seed remains in me and then finally we should strive to get the sin out of our lives and live a holy life to confirm our new identity as the children of God Verse 10, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. John's a black and white guy, right? You're either a child of God, you're in God's family or the devil's family. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. I don't know about you, but, but any one of those things motivates me. But taken all together, just piled on like this, it's a, a cascade, an avalanche of incentive to live a holy life you feel that i hope so so obeying christ seeking to live a lifestyle of obedience to jesus that's how you and i can grow more confident that we really do belong to god but now this next one is where i want to focus the most okay because john narrows his focus from this general call to obey Jesus to now living out a very specific directive that Jesus gave to his followers, his command to love one another, to love each other. And so that's the second point, the test of love, that we can grow more confident in our walk with God by showing Christ's self-sacrificing love to other people. That's verses 11 through 24. I think it's instructive to remember that the writer here, this man John, was well acquainted with love. He was, he was called the beloved disciple. He lived three years with Jesus who was the personification of love. He saw love in action on many occasions. He heard many teachings from Jesus on love. More than any other Bible writer, John speaks of love. He's the apostle of love. And we know what love is, right? Or do we? We live in a culture that's so mixed up, so confused about love. Wouldn't you agree? There's the confusing of love with attraction. I mean, are those the same? There's the confusing of love with infatuation. There's the confusion of love with sex. There's the confusing of love with how you make me feel when I'm around you. We must be in love. There's the confusing of love with a a kind of codependency. I need you to need me and that's how I know we're in love. There are all sorts of notions that pass for love in our day but John is gonna do all of us a favor and cut through all those foggy ideas about love that are floating around and he's gonna get to the core of love, agape love, that's the Greek word. And he starts by exhorting his readers and us to remember Jesus Christ's famous love command, this exhortation to love. In verse 11, this is the message, he says, you heard from the beginning that we should love one another. From the beginning, it actually goes way back to the Old Testament, and of course, I'm sure the words of Jesus himself were ringing in John's ears when he wrote this. Remember, Jesus is the one who said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is the birthmark of a Christian. I'm in a discussion these days with a friend of mine. I don't know what you talk about with your friends. We're talking about how the Old Testament law of God relates to us as New Testament Christians. Sound exciting? We enjoy talking about this, and we're talking about to what extent we are still, in our day, called to obey God's holy law, God's Ten Commandments, for example. But you know, Jesus said this, all of the law can be summed up, gathered up and summed up in two commands. Love God with everything you've got, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? Love and love. And those are certainly applicable to believers of all ages and all generations. But the key is to understand that both of those things, loving God and loving people, are actually responses to being loved by God. Did you know that? That's why John begins this this chapter, chapter three, in the way that he does. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. And in the original, it's, it's be blown away by this otherworldly foreign kind of love that God has shown to us that a holy and righteous creator, God, would bend low to extend tender mercy to people like us. We have been loved. You see, we love because He first loved us. First John 4:19. Our loving worship back to God is a response to his love for us and our love for others is also a response to being loved by God. It's actually meant to be an overflow, an overflow of the love of God that has filled us up. And the illustration that comes to my mind is a pitcher, a water pitcher. And we know what these were meant for, right? These are containers meant to be filled up. In fact, these containers long and ache to be filled up with liquid. It's why they were created, right? <laughs> and when they are filled up, then they can pour out. You know what? You're like this water pitcher. And so am I. We were meant to be filled up so that we can pour out onto other people. But so many people, maybe even people in this room, walk through their lives kind of like this, fill me up please, I'm empty, fill me up. Fill me up with the four A's, which is where you say, Pastor Steve, what are the four A's? (laughs) And that's when I say, attention, affection, acceptance, and affirmation I mean we need those things human beings need those things and some people are walking around all of their lives looking at other people and saying fill me up please give me attention notice me care for me care about me help me know that I belong that I belong here and tell me I'm a good person tell me that my life matters and they go through their life seeking those things from other people And they're kind of clawing and grasping at others, saying, please, please fill me up. But you know what God's intention is for us? God's intention is that we would look up into the heavens and we would see that God's love for us is intimate and affectionate, that God notices us, that we matter to him, that in Christ we do have a place of belonging, we do have a a seat at his table, amen? And he affirms us. He made us in his image. And he says, you are mine. You belong to me. Your life matters. And when someone believes that, it's like they've gotten filled up. And instead of living a self-absorbed, self-focused life that's forever grasping at other people, trying to get others to fill them up, they've been filled up by God. And then you know what? And you gotta know (laughs) how tempted I am to just and if it was mid-July and you all were sweating coming in today I'd do it (laughs) I'd do it but when you've been filled up by the love of God and this is the case of many of you then you have something to pour out onto other people to refresh them it changes the focus of your life doesn't it from self-absorbed and a self-orientation to being others-oriented how can I how can I refresh you today how can I bless you today It's a whole different orientation of life and it comes from receiving by faith the beautiful, glorious love of God that he has for you. The reckless, relentless, powerful, unconditional love of God expressed through Jesus Christ. Wow. Thank you, Lord, for that love. Amen. Thank you for that love. And so the exhortation to love one another is really a call to let God fill you up with his love so that you can then spill out. You can then overflow onto other people and bless them. So that's the exhortation. Christ commanded us to love, to let God's love fill us up. And then to kind of drive home this contrast between self-focused living and others-oriented living, John goes to a well-known Old Testament example of what? hate. Embodied in the person we know as Cain. Cain. Here's what he writes. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer like Cain. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. So I don't know if you're familiar or not with this story of the two sons of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, but if you do know it, you know it's a story of sibling rivalry and of envy, right? Of being offended, of of anger and brooding resentment that turned into this kind of seething bitterness that eventually boiled over into a a malicious attack out in a field and a bloody murder. Eerily similar to many of the awful shootings of our day. Where someone says, you know what? They're being treated better than I'm being treated, that's unfair, I'm mad about it, I'm gonna get even somehow, I'm making a vow that I'm gonna get even, I'm gonna ease my pain by hurting somebody else because you know hurt people hurt people. And that's exactly what Cain did to his brother after God accepted Abel's sacrifice, which was a blood sacrifice, an animal sacrifice, but he refused to accept Cain's offering of crops from his field, which were the work of his own hands. And when Cain's offering was rejected, how did Cain respond? By turning away from God By sinking, it says, sinking into depression, it says his his face was downcast and letting bitterness seep into his soul. And, And that resentment so totally consumed him that he ended up taking revenge and murdering his own brother, snuffing out his life. What's John's point in bringing this up? That's not love. Even though they were brothers, He's talking about loving your brother. This is the opposite of love. Envying somebody else who receives more favor than you, resenting their success, becoming bitter that they have it better than you, and seeking to cover your own pain by inflicting pain on that person. That's the antithesis of love. And I would say nothing will erode your God confidence like a heart filled with envy and bitterness and malice and hate. John's just like, he's a black and white guy, right? He gets right to the point. He says, don't be like that guy. Don't be like Cain. Cain, who took the bait of Satan and let bitterness fill his heart. You know what? It ruined him. It ruined his life. That's because bitterness and the life of God cannot peacefully coexist in the soul of a human being. And then he says, so let me tell you about the love that will cure that. And he introduces us again to the embodiment and the essence of love, who's a person, and the person's name is Jesus Christ. Do not be like Cain, he says. Instead, seek to be more like this one. So we've all heard of John three sixteen. Now look at 1 John three sixteen. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Isn't that good? And there's the the cure for an envious, bitter heart receiving the gift of the laid down life of Jesus. Receiving the agape love of Jesus Christ who is the embodiment of true love. Listen, that person in your life that you've gotten crosswise with, that there's something between you, you will not forgive that person, much less lay down your life for them in love until you comprehend and accept that Jesus voluntarily, willingly, in love, laid down his life for you. That alone is what can displace that envy, that gnawing envy and that bitter resentment that has consumed you. And when that happens, when you allow his love to fill up your heart, then you can love more and more and more like Jesus loves. Laying down your life, denying yourself, dying to self so that they might experience the goodness of God. A quick point of clarification here. Jesus laid down his life for us by what? by dying on a cross to atone for our sins. We cannot lay down our lives for other people like that. I cannot lay down my life by dying on a cross to pay and atone for your sins, I can't. And you cannot do that for me, why? Because you have your own sins and I have my own sins. It took a sinless one, a sinless substitute to be able to take our place so that he could bear our sins and atone for our sins. So we're not able to do that, but we can lay down our lives for others in the sense of being willing to sacrifice our agenda and our desires and lay down our lives in that sense and sacrifice what we have for their highest good. That's what agape love is and does. Knowing that, John gets very practical now He shows how that kind of love ought to be expressed in the everyday life of the one who knows God, the expression of love. Verse 17, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in that guy? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue but with actions and in truth. I love being part of a body of believers where this is going on. I love that a homeless person can show up at our church a couple of months ago and immediately 10, 12, 15 people kind of kick into action and say, how can I help you? Can I give you a ride? Can Can I offer food to you? Can I help you find a place to stay? Can I encourage you? Can I watch your dog? Talk about laying down your life. Talk about dying to self. There's a family that watched this person's dog for several months and then one day that dog got sick and they took the dog to the vet and got the dog well and paid the bill for that. What kind of foreign, otherworldly kind of love does that? (laughs) I love uh, the Ministry of Neighborhood Bridges that our own Ron Smith helps to spearhead that just connects needs in our community with need meters and brings them together through the use of technology. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Seeing the need and meeting it. Seeing the need and meeting it. This is the way Jesus' people ought to live their lives, right? This is how the love of God in us and the life of God in us splashes out. I've been waiting all sermon to do that. I wondered who was going to sit here. I guess I could have done it over here where nobody is. There. This is how it splashes out of our lives. This is how it spills over onto others, seeing needs and meeting those needs. There's something we taught our kids when they were young, and we hope it took. We are blessed to be a blessing. We are blessed to be a blessing. We are channels, we are conduits from God into us and then out through us to others. Blessed to be a blessing. This last point is going to bring us full circle back to where we started because John brings into view, finally, the effects of love. The effects of love. Let me read this again for you. Just listen, beginning in verse 19. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Did you know your heart can lie to you? God is greater than our hearts. Verse 21, Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask. So here's the vertical, the prayers of asking and receiving. Why? Because we obey his commands and do what pleases him, and this is his command, to believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and to what? Love one another as he commanded us. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And This is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Now, John could have talked about the benefits of love to the recipients, like when we show love to other people. He could have talked about how their needs get met and they are helped and they are encouraged. He could have talked about the fact that when we bless others, they get to experience a taste of the love of God and they receive a gift that they can then pass on to others. He could have talked about all those things, but he doesn't go there, not here anyway, Instead, he hones in on certain benefits that come to us when we love other people. And here they are. A calmed down heart. How many of you could benefit from that? A calmed down heart, free from condemnation, boosted confidence, answered prayer, and an inner assurance that we truly do belong to God, that we do have his love in us. Who wouldn't want more of those things? And I feel compelled in the next few moments to focus on that one that relates to prayer, that link that I talked about earlier between having confidence in our praying and our horizontal relationships with other people, keeping those human relationships clear of hatred and bitterness and malice. There's a link, as we noted, the horizontal affects the vertical. And I've already referred to some scriptures that teach this and point this out. Here's the reality, if there is somebody in my life, a brother or a sister in my life with whom I have some unresolved issue, it's come between us, and if I choose to continue to hold on to that, to, to nurse that, well, then I should not expect that the Lord is gonna be inclined to grant my prayer requests. I can't read this any other way, can you? Relationship sins block answers to prayer. Relationship sins block answers to prayer. So knowing that, let me ask what I need to ask. Who is that person in your life you are just not able to love these days. There's just something between you. Have, have you ever thought about the fact that that lack of love is hindering your prayer life? In fact, it may be the reason that you don't care to pray that much because you know that if you go to God in prayer, he's gonna put his finger on that, right? Lord, I pray for that promotion at work. Yeah, but what about that relationship? Don't you need to make that right? Right? again in our small group this week we were talking about this and I've been convicted about this ever since because I I got to thinking about the people that if I'm honest there's something between us and, and love is not flowing. In some cases they did something that hurt or wounded or injured me and I haven't gotten over it I've been holding on to that. In other cases I did something that hurt or offended or wounded them and they they pulled away, but either way, there's something between us. Love is not flowing. Here's kind of a funny way I've come to identify these kinds of broken relationships, okay? I've given it, I've given it an acronym. I think it's there, A-G-E-E. It stands for awkward giant eagle encounters. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. If I run into somebody unexpectedly, and for me it's usually at Giant Eagle because I find myself there about every other night, pick up something that we're out of. If I run into somebody it's like, and I immediately clench up and I'm uncomfortable and it's awkward and I don't know what to say and I'm tempted to kind of avoid eye contact and look the other way, that's a signal from God that something is amiss in my heart towards that other person. And it's like the Lord says, Steve, what was that about? How come you wanted to find an escape hatch when you saw that person? In fact, I don't even have to physically go to Giant Eagle anymore to be able to identify people that I, where things aren't right between us. I just have to ask myself, Steve, who would you be very uncomfortable, just envision in your mind, who would you be uncomfortable running into in aisle six that would make you just wanna skip onto aisle eight and avoid meeting them all together? And I had to confess to my small group that there is a list of people of whom that would be true for me. And I'm not proud of that. So I'm dealing with my issues. But how about you? How about you? What relationship in your life has sustained some damage and the truth is, it's, it's hurting your prayer life and your relationship with God as well. You're not only avoiding them, you're avoiding him. Because you know he's gonna put his finger on that and call you to deal with it. Does somebody come to mind? And if you're having trouble thinking of, of somebody along these lines, ask yourself this, who is it that I just can't stand to see praised? Who is it that just, it just grates on me when they get recognized for something, for an achievement, or when they get elevated? Who is it that that just really drives me crazy and bothers me? That's a signal that something's amiss in here towards them. You know, Jesus told us there's two sides to this, right? Who do you have something against on the one hand, and on the other hand, who has something against you? Both situations can suck the love right out of the relationship. Who is it? Is it your spouse? Is it your ex-spouse? Is it your son? Is it your daughter? For many people it's their dad or their mom. Is it that supervisor at work? Is it that coworker who keeps getting promoted and advanced Well, you don't. Is it that coach or that teacher in your life or that friend whom you thought would always be there for you and at some point they bailed? I've been asking the Lord to not only bring to my mind but to bring to your mind the faces of that that person or those people he wants you to take a step towards and make an effort to reconcile with. And he wants you to know this, if you'll take that step in faith, he's gonna be with you every step of the way. A couple years ago, I had an AG experience with someone, an awkward giant eagle encounter. And my heart was stirred up, and I, the Lord wouldn't let me rest. You ever have that happen? It just lingered he wouldn't let me rest with respect to that particular person and I wrestled with him for several weeks. I don't want to, you know, just let sleeping dogs lie, right? He, wouldn't, he would have none of it. And finally, I gave in to God, which is a good idea, by the way, and I said yes to him and I reached out and took some initiative and I made contact with this person. I was kind of fearful of how they were going to respond. Like, what? That was years ago, you know? Why are you bringing this up? Well, I was shocked because in that instance, God had evidently been preparing that person. It's like they were waiting by the phone, waiting for my call, hadn't talked with them for years. And when I said, you know, I just, (laughs) there's something between us, I don't feel good about it, I'd love to get together and talk it out, and they said, yeah, let's do that. They shocked me, and we did. We had a meeting, we came together, we talked, I was able to own my part of damaging that relationship. Interestingly enough, that prompted them to own their part in damaging the relationship. We were able to look at each other and say, will you please forgive me? I was so wrong. And hear those wonderful words, yes, I forgive you. And We cried, we prayed together. I mean, it was glorious. And something not only got cleared up between me and that person that day, but something got cleared up vertically as well. I so want us to enter this special week of prayer with a clear conscience and a cleaned out heart so that God will align our prayers with his will and answer them. Yes, in his way and in his time, but he'll give us that settled sense of confidence, I'm gonna answer that prayer. Let's not miss out on this golden opportunity to make things right in the horizontal so that we will have unhindered access in the vertical with our Lord. And I would challenge you to resolve even now to take whatever step he might call you to take to mend that relationship, to make it right. And I'm telling you this, more God confidence awaits you on the other side of that. So would you bow your heads with me? Will you ponder this for a moment? Who is that one whose face is appearing on the screen of your mind as I talk about this? Who is that one? How many of you would raise your hand? I'm not gonna embarrass you. Just lift your hand if you say, I know know who it is. I know the one that God is calling me to move towards. Okay, many, many. Praise God, many of you. You're gonna need some courage. You're gonna need some bravery, we'll call it, and faith. Don't do what I did. Don't wait. Don't wrestle with God for two weeks. I mean, you can if you want, but why not just say yes now, in this moment? Beautiful opportunity, yes. Yes, Lord, I'll take that step. I'll initiate, I'll reach out, I'll make contact. And if you're a person who just needs some, you know, as you envision that, It sends chills up and down your spine. I would encourage you to come in a moment to one of our prayer partners, and they're gonna take their place, and just ask them to pray for you for courage to take this step. You can say yes in your seat, but I think taking a step perhaps towards a prayer partner would be an indication that you wanna take a step towards saying yes to God and moving towards this person would you do that you can come of course and be prayed for for anything that's going on in your life but to me that seems like a particularly specific application so Lord give us give me give your people now the faith and the courage to make things right in the horizontal so that not only can that be repaired but our vertical relationship with you can be totally open what a joy that would bring Move among us in these next few moments, I pray in
0: Christ's name, amen.